This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories. Readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we Are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. Today we're listening to an episode from The Europeans, our flagship talk show podcast. In this episode, Katie and Dominic speak to Bulgarian researcher Ognjan Georgiev about how the pandemic triggered reverse migration in Eastern Europe. Here is the Great Reverse Migration. Hello and welcome everyone to another edition of the Europeans. Nice that you have joined us for your weekly dose of tales from across this continent that Katie and I call home. I'm Dominic, I'm an opera singer and podcaster living in Amsterdam and I'm speaking down the Skype line to co-host Katie, a journalist living in Paris. Hello. We've got quite a lot of flack this week for using Skype, haven't we? People have been so rude about the fact that we use Skype. So I just want to say once and for all, it's an excellent piece of technology and we're very wedded to it. It's not going away. It is owned by Microsoft now, but I looked it up and it still has 44% of its employees in Estonia. So I don't think we should feel too bad about it. I think it's the natural choice for us. Also, we use its ringtone as one of our jingles, so we can't get rid of it. Yeah, Zoom doesn't have a good jingle. Boo. Anyway, how are you, Katie? I'm fine. I had my long-awaited French nationality interview in the end this week. Are you French now? No, it's just a waiting game now. I just have to wait for a year and hope that everything is going to be okay. But the interview itself went fine. I'm glad that I spent so long cramming because I did get some quite tough questions like who was president in 1975 and what did Marie Curie get her two Nobel Prizes for and who actually wrote the French national anthem? So quite tough things. Uh, but she was very nice, the lady at the préfecture who did the interview. And the thing that was really satisfying was that at one point she was like, who is the president of France? And I was like, his name is Emmanuel Macron. And funnily enough, I've got a selfie of him here, which was taken when our podcast got shortlisted for an award a couple of years ago. So that was really fun. Was she impressed? She loved it. I could see her smiling behind her mask. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if having a selfie with Macron will sway things, but I hope it might you know, convince them that I've got some friends in high places. Yeah, I mean, if you now get your citizenship, I think we should just say it is because of that selfie. It's definitely why. How are you? What's happening in Amsterdam? Well, yeah, I'm fine. We had the Dutch election last week. Oh, yeah. And yeah, as I predicted, it wasn't incredibly exciting in terms of the result. It was like a pretty stable result, quite similar to 2017, except um, that this party, the Liberal Democrats type party, the 
D66 did a bit better than expected under the leadership of Sigrid Kaag to become the second biggest party. And mm. people are now suggesting that she's the most powerful female politician in Dutch history. Cool. The far-right parties as a block did better than in 2017 and actually as a block are now bigger than the traditional left-wing parties. When I say traditional, I am actually including the Green Left Party in that. So it's that's quite something. Mm. But there are two other interesting bits of news from the election um, about small parties that I wanted to mention because I thought our listeners might be interested. First, Volt, the pan-European centrist progressive party that fights for politicians to work together across national borders, they won three seats, which is a big achievement considering this is the first time they've won any seats in any national legislature. That's very cool. We had their founder on the podcast in the very early days of Volt, didn't we? Yeah, and in the very early days of this podcast. Hmm. It'll be really interesting, I think, to see if they do well in other European national elections coming up. And another of the new parties to enter the second chamber is the anti-racist and anti-capitalist party by Ain, which got one seat for its party leader, Silvana Simons, a former TV presenter. And Simons is now the first black woman to form a political party in Europe and win a seat. Her presence in the second chamber means that there is now at least one black person in the second chamber. During the last term, there was not a single black person in that chamber. Well, that is a tiny bit of progress, I guess, at least. Yeah. So good news from the Netherlands-ish. I realise you didn't actually mention that Mark Rutte, the current prime minister, his party did actually win and did a bit better than they did in 2017. I probably should have mentioned him. Well, that's just taken as a given, isn't it? Because Teflon Mark always wins stuff. Well, and it's also just typical of the fact that he's the kind of person that no one really notices is there. He's so uncharismatic, but for some reason, everyone still votes for him. It's interesting. Anyway, coming up on this week's show, we're probably going to be the only podcast not talking about the EU-UK vaccine war. You'll be maybe pleased to hear, not that it isn't important. This week, we are instead going to be speaking to the Bulgarian urban researcher Ognjan Georgiev, who has spent much of the past year studying something he is referring to as the Grand Return, a fascinating phenomenon whereby huge numbers of Eastern Europeans who had moved away from their home countries started moving back in March of last year. I wonder why. Keep listening to hear this fascinating conversation with Ognian about this return migration and the big question, how many people are going to stay once the pandemic is over? But first... Who has had a good week, Katie? I am giving good week to Finland, which has been named happiest country in the world for the fourth year running. Congratulations, Finland. Wow. It feels like every year when this ranking comes out, you know, it's a very serious economic study called the World Happiness Report. It is sponsored by the UN. Loads of data goes into it. But every year Finland comes top and every year people are quite surprised (laughs) because the Finns, how can I put this? Their national stereotype is quite melancholy. I always remember the story that our former guest, Fikra Gibbons, told me once. He spent some time living in Finland and he told me about this party he went to where everyone just stared silently into the fire for hours and then went home. Maybe the fire is the source of happiness. Very peaceful, a nice fire. Anyway, um, from friends and colleagues, I understand that lots of Finns will, you know, readily admit that they're not big on public displays of joyfulness. But the thing about the World Happiness Report is actually how it measures happiness. Uh, It does ask people in every country 
to measure their own happiness on a scale of one to 10. But that's not the only data they use because that's really subjective, right? And if we just ask people to rate their own happiness, France would inevitably be like the unhappiest country in the world. <laughs> that is just a fact. Um, but what the survey does, is it takes data about how people describe their own happiness, but it also adds data like how rich is the country per capita? What kind of social security net is there to protect people? How bad is corruption? And Finland does really well on all of those kinds of measures. Uh, the public services are really good. There's not much crime. And people generally trust each other. Uh, apart from that, there's obviously loads of amazing nature in Finland, which helps. And some people think it also has something to do with this Finnish concept of sisu, which means persevering when things are tough and seeing challenges as an opportunity. And this is apparently something that people exercise on a daily basis. Things like going out for a walk, even if the weather is awful, and embracing the cold and the rain. Uh, so you can see how that kind of an outlook would lead to people saying in surveys, like, yeah, I'm doing okay and my life is pretty good. How come New Zealand aren't number one? I mean... They seem to have completely aced the pandemic and my family members in New Zealand seem to be having a great time, like going to festivals. Also, they've obviously got the most beautiful nature. They do have a lot of good stuff. New Zealand does sneak in there into the top 10. They're actually the only non-European entry in the top 10 at number nine. And that's the thing that really jumps out at you, actually, is that nine out of the top 10 happiest countries in the world are in Europe. Uh, after Finland, you've got Denmark, Switzerland, Iceland, the Netherlands. Congratulations, Dominic. Thank you. Norway, Sweden and Luxembourg, then New Zealand and then Austria. So, you know, I mean, as you said, this is a time when Europe doesn't necessarily seem that happy in terms of this huge like vaccine war going on. A lot of countries here are going through a third wave of COVID. We are vaccinating at snail's pace. It doesn't feel like this is ever going to end. Uh, but in spite of all of that, you know, this ranking is kind of a reminder that a lot of Europe has comparatively little to complain about when you think about our general well-being. Um, having said that, you will have noticed that all of those countries at the top of the list are Northern European. So it is these rich Northern European countries that have really well-funded public services that have done really well. After the top 10, it's more of a mixed picture. You've got Israel at number 10, Costa Rica at 16. The United States is listed as the 19th happiest country in the world. And a lot of the rest of Europe is in the top 30. Uh, Spain's at 27, Italy 28th, Slovenia 29th, which is pretty good. Uh, but Greece came out as least happy in the EU at 68th place, uh, which is really, you know, perhaps not surprising, actually, given just how much public services have been squeezed by the financial crisis over the last decade. How useful do you think it is that this ranking exists? Probably not very because people just use it to like tweet about the fact that their own country is only ranked like 19th and has slipped three places or whatever. I mean, I wonder whether any politicians actually look at it and think like, oh, we need to make things better. This is what we can do. Because then it would be useful. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. You know, you like to think that maybe someone in some office in the government of every country is looking at this and thinking, oh, shit, we've fallen three places. We need to do something. And, you know, a bit of national competition is always healthy, maybe. But also, I mean, for tourism, it's been really helpful for Finland. Like tourism has increased over recent years off the back of this. They have marketed themselves as the world's happiest nation. So maybe other countries look at that and think, God, if only we were the happiest country, we'd have loads of visitors. Not now, obviously. This has obviously not been the happiest year in general for like most of the world. What effect did the pandemic have on this ranking? How did they take it into account? Well, this is the weird thing. I mean, obviously, there's been a ton of research about the impact of the pandemic on mental health, 
you know, depression is up, anxiety is up. I think all of us or many of us have got people in our lives who've been horribly affected by this. And in the happiness report, about a third of the countries reported what is described as a significantly higher frequency of negative emotions. I mean, that's not surprising, is it? What is surprising, perhaps, is that in general, the average person taking part in this massive study did not report a particular decline in their overall well-being over the past year. Uh, the data comes from Gallup, the polling company. And when they asked people, you know, how are you doing? The average person was like, yeah, about the same. And it's not really clear why, given this massive crisis that we're all experiencing. Uh, but John Hellowell, one of the authors of the report, he said that one possible explanation is that COVID is a shared crisis. And that even though it's affected some people in much more tragic ways than others, it does feel like we're all in this together to some extent. And that maybe makes people feel a sense of solidarity. Hmm. Another thing I feel about this study and the fact that there are all these European nations in the top 10 is it makes me wonder, is it a bit icky that we're like celebrating the happiness of all these European countries whose happiness is like built on other countries' sadness? I mean, that's a really simplistic way of putting it. But, you know, we've got quite an uncomfortable colonial history. And here we are now living in wealth and happiness. Yeah, that is a good point to make. There's obviously like loads of structural inequalities built into this thing. It's not just the fact that these countries are amazing. It's there's a lot of history that goes into it. I will point out, though, Finland was itself a colonized country. So it's not one rule for everything. Uh -huh, yeah, good point. Who has had a bad week? Well, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and try and talk about sport. <laughs> good luck. Because it's been a bad week for the West German Football Association after they received a barrage of criticism for their handling of a disciplinary ruling against the manager of Gladbach's under-23 team, a guy called Heiko Vogel. Naughty Heiko. Uh, what did he actually do, this guy? Well, he insulted the referees as he left the pitch, and two of the assistant referees were women. And uh, it's been reported that he said women have no place on the football field. Oh, I mean, this is just like such a dated idea, this idea that women's sport is rubbish. Yeah, it's a dated idea, but it's still very present, I think, in most sports and particularly in football and just wait until you hear about what his punishments were he was fined 1500 euros he was banned from the dugout for two matches both fine reasonable but he was also ordered to lead six training sessions for a women's or girls team at his club as a punishment well kinda it's disputed by the Football Association. They say that him training the women's team was not a punishment per se. They say he was going to train them as part of his apology to the women's team. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but it's definitely been perceived by many as a punishment. And that's partly because it's been reported with punishment in the headlines. But yeah, even if, as Heiko says, he is giving his coaching as a gesture of apology, not as a punishment. I think it's pretty understandable why there has been a huge backlash in the German women's football world. What has it actually looked like, this backlash? Well, there was a big open letter addressed to the German Football Association, which was published on Instagram last week from some of Germany's top soccer players, including Germany's captain, Alexandra Popp. It included some pretty damning passages like this judgment discriminates against all women in sport and especially in football. 
They say that Fogel's behaviour was far more than unsportsmanlike. It was insulting and discriminatory. And they call on the German Football Association as the highest institution in German football to take a stand and to take action. So the German Football Association is above the West German Football Association who actually made the ruling. And according to some of the reporting, it was actually Fogel's idea himself to train the women's team whilst he was negotiating his punishment with the West German Football Association. But why should the women's team have to endure six sessions with a man who's just been mouthing off on the pitch about women not belonging on the pitch? Exactly. It feels like a punishment for them. I mean, I get that maybe there's some suggestion of maybe if he was just around women, he'd understand that they're amazing at sport too. But the women's team themselves just shouldn't have to deal with that. Yeah, I agree. And the Association of German Football actually seemed to have agreed as well. They responded very sympathetically to the women's outrage and said it's incomprehensible that one decrees training of a women's team as a part of a punishment. On top of that, there was a response from the West German Football Association who actually have decided to review the judgment. So I think it's pretty unlikely that Vogel will be actually training any of the women's or girls teams anytime soon. I should probably mention that Fogel has expressed remorse for what he said and apologised to the referee as soon as he left the pitch. He says that the comments were made in the heat of the moment and are not actually representing his views. But yeah, as I said earlier, this incident isn't the only instance of discrimination against women in sport and particularly against women in football. There was a big survey commissioned by the organisation Women in Football last year of 4,000 women working across the footballing industry in the UK and 66% said they had faced gender discrimination in their football workplace but only 12% had reported the incidents. A ruling like this one in Germany is perhaps unlikely to help women feel like their complaints would be dealt with sensitively and effectively, but I hope that the reaction that's been triggered by the ruling is actually creating some kind of movement towards genuine improvements for women in sport. Me too. Do you play football? You know very well that I don't play football, <laughs> or indeed any sort of ball sport. Yeah, me neither. I thought you did very well at talking about it anyway. Well done. You should become a sports correspondent. Please no. Are you listening to this podcast thinking, wow, this is one of the few podcasts I listen to that isn't backed by a big media organisation like the BBC or Politico? Well, that wouldn't surprise me because the podcasting scene is actually becoming less and less independent as the big media hitters take over this once do-it-yourself medium. If you'd like to help keep this little independent podcast up and running and have a spare buck or two to spend on us, then we'd be ever so grateful. Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We've got a few people to thank this week. Who are they, Katie? They are Paula Tama, Emily Humphreys, Iona Lungu, Master, Karen Guy Hofstrand Eason, and Carmela Thompson, who we should have thanked weeks ago, actually, but somehow her name fell off the list. I am so sorry, Carmela. So, an extra loud shout out to you. Speaking of amazing Patreon supporters, one of our listeners really went above and beyond the Call of Duty this week by making us a new jingle. I'm so excited about this. Mariska Martina, who is a wonderful musician, she made a special jingle using that ancient conch shell instrument from our happy ending a few weeks ago. And I think it's time for its premiere.
Thank you so much, Mariska. You should check out her Instagram for lots of lovely music. She is there at Mariska Martina. We will put a link in the show notes. But moving on from conch shells to mass migration. That's not a very good segue, is it? No. Never mind. Let's roll with it. Uh, it is time for this week's interview. We are going to Bulgaria to speak to Ognian Georgiev, uh, Oggy, to some of his friends. Oggy is a journalist at Capital Weekly, the Bulgarian newspaper. I first heard about his work when I met one of his colleagues, Zornitsa, at a Bulgarian podcasting festival a while back. And she said, uh, I work with this guy. He has been doing this absolutely fascinating migration research into this huge wave of migrants who are coming back to Bulgaria during the pandemic. Uh, as you probably know, Bulgaria is one of several countries in Eastern Europe that have lost huge amounts of people over the last few decades. People heading to Western Europe, mostly for job opportunities, which is completely understandable, obviously. I mean, how many of us have left home looking for opportunities? Both of us, for one thing. Uh, but the scale of this exodus from Eastern Europe, it is so massive that it has had a huge, huge impact on the societies left behind. There has been a massive brain drain from these countries. They have lost many talented people. So that exodus is nothing new. It's very well known. What wasn't so well known or understood is this huge reverse migration that there has been during the pandemic. Uh, I will let Oggy tell you all about it, but the numbers of people coming back, it's kind of mind-boggling. His research has now been published by the European Council on Foreign Relations. Oggy is a fellow at this think tank when he's not working at Capital. And we rang him up on the old Skype machine to ask him what exactly has been going on here. Over the last few decades, Eastern European countries had been experiencing pretty steady population decline and large numbers of outward migration. In what kind of numbers were people leaving and why were so many people leaving? The population has been a huge, huge problem for Eastern Europe and Central Europe, for that matter. I think it's the only region in the world that has actually lost population in the last three decades continuously without a war. It's uh, obvious that there were several waves of migration. First of all, after communism fell, that was the first wave of migration when people suddenly were free to travel and free to wander about in Western Europe, where they were only dreaming to go. Countries like Bulgaria lost a lot of very qualified people. Then the second wave came right before the entry in the European Union, when students started going west and then staying there. And then the third wave came with the entry into the European Union, when a lot of people, Polish, Bulgarian, Hungarians, uh, you name it, just went to work in Western European countries and many of them stayed. So that was a huge problem and it continues to be so at the moment. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here? Like how much has the population of Bulgaria, for example, shrunk over the last few decades? As a part of um, a newspaper I work for, Capital, we did a research some time ago and we figured that around 1.3 million Bulgarians were living abroad at this point, which is roughly wow. out of a 7 million population. What is this? Roughly 20%, 20 something. So this is a huge drop. And we are talking about young, active people. Well, probably not all of them young, but very active because migrants are usually very active. And this is happening everywhere. The Baltic states lost enormous amounts of people, somewhere between 15 to 20, 25% of population. Romania lost a lot of people. So we're not talking like small waves. We're talking about huge groups of people leaving. 
And what kind of impact has that exodus had on the societies that people have left behind? I think you can imagine that the societies were very heavily hit by that. Like, first of all, socially, all of your systems are planned for a different type of society, for a different type of um, age uh, distribution, if you want, like pension systems, uh, salaries, everything. So this was a huge blow. Second of all, it was a huge gap in the development. If you want to develop fast, as Eastern European states wanted to catch up with the Western European standards, you need people. Like this is your basic engine of growth. And you need active, willing to work, willing to be entrepreneurs and whatever people who are not there. And you are left with a gap where they used to be. And this doesn't help in closing the gap with Western Europe. And I think in the years and decades to come, this will be the major project for those countries to try and recover some of those losses. Back in March last year, the pandemic hit. And with that, suddenly many Eastern Europeans who had moved away to the west of Europe started returning. Were you surprised when you first heard about this phenomenon? I was not surprised, but I actually started gathering the data. When we were trying to study migration some years ago, there was never enough available data because of the way people move in the European Union and they don't have to register where they go, they don't have to pass inner controls and whatever. It's very hard to track them down. It's very hard to get good data on where do people move and how do they move. And suddenly, because of the pandemic, because of the way national authorities started controlling the flows in and out of the country, Mm -hmm. because they now registered everybody and they registered everybody not only when they entered, but a lot of them to their place of stay because of the quarantines. In my mind, there was supposed to be a big database somewhere that was laying and waiting for somebody to research it. And I started digging. I started trying to find out more about the data. And I found the databases of uh, the government about the quarantine people, about the people entering and leaving the country at this point. And when you start to work with them, some things become more or less obvious. So how much do we know about how many people have come home and why they have headed home? It's kind of tricky. I'm going to try to sum it up a little bit. So the data shows that in the period of March-May, which I took as a study period, because March-May 2020 was the first big lockdown in Bulgaria, where everything was basically closed. You cannot enter different cities. You cannot move from city to city. You were supposed to stay at home. When you returned, you were supposed to have a quarantine. And so my basic assumption was that anybody who comes into Bulgaria at this particular time with these travel restrictions is probably coming to stay. The number of people who returned in this particular time frame is around 550,000 people. Wow. So... You have to, of course, compare that to people who left, which is 80,000 people less. Now, not all those who left are the same as, of course, the people who entered. So there is no direct comparison there, but just for statistical purposes. So I managed to track down around, I think, 70,000 people who were quarantined. So I was able to track the people who entered the country to their final address and to calculate them the amount of people who are quarantined in different cities compared to the working age population in those cities, just to have a clue of how big was this wave. 
And it was quite spread out, wasn't it? It's not just that people were returning to the big cities. No, 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 no. Uh, everywhere. It was basically in all 265 municipalities in Bulgaria. There were quarantined people. And when you compare them to the working age population, there are differences emerge. For example, a lot of the top 20 cities or villages who got people quarantining people were places that were losing people for years and years. And so my working assumption was that some of those who returned were obviously some of the people who left. I guess the big question is, how much do we know about how many of these people want to stay in Bulgaria permanently or more permanently and how many want to head back to the countries where they were living and working? <laughs> That's the million dollars question. I guess everybody wants to know, but there is no way for you to interview so many people, diverse people, fast, you know. What we did was a social media survey and we got quite some answers. We had uh, 130 answers from people who returned because of COVID or were stuck in Bulgaria because of COVID. Around 10% of them said that they're not going to leave. I'm not going to leave again. And when you isolate people who are abroad for two years or more, this percentage goes up to 19. And then you have almost half of them saying that they were not sure because obviously the situation was very uncertain. Mm -hmm. You couldn't really plan. So there was no way to know what those people are going to do because nobody could really plan for the future. Europe has not recovered yet. So if you're back in Bulgaria because you lost your job, for example, why would you go back now? doesn't make sense unless the economy starts to open. So uh, this turned out to be longer than expected, I think. People, even if they returned home because of obvious reasons, to be with family, to be where they feel secure, to have somebody to help them, stuff like that, they weren't planning to stay for a year. Are there any policies that the Bulgarian government are passing to specifically try and persuade the returning migrants to stay? Today, literally today, I saw the economic program of the largest party in Bulgaria. We have elections coming up next month. And I saw the economic program. And in it, they've written that they are planning to create a fund for helping remigrants, the people who return with a one year worth of rent, one year worth of child support, one year helping with them various other things to help them settle down, especially in places that are lower wage and uh, things like that. So they do think about that. It's obvious that they, they want to do something about it, at least for the votes, you know, mm -hmm. because take into account that a lot of the people who returned are actually still here. So they will vote in those elections, which is another curious thing to happen because they weren't here probably last time. And so it also upends the political conversation. So you were in the USA when the pandemic broke out. And like the EU, it's a big area of land within which people are able to move freely and choose where to live and work. Do you see a lot of similarities between how people move around the USA and how they move around the EU? The reason I went to the U.S. was to compare the two. Ah. My idea was that the European Union is still in the very early stages of becoming a country, you know, of becoming like a place where people move from one place to the other without restrictions and without borders. And we are still very early in this, like 10 years or something like that. And the U.S. has been there for 200 years. So what they do have as urban mobility is a lot 
more than what we have. And I was uh, looking into how cities in the U.S. are coping with that. And they're far ahead in strategies and far ahead in what they do to attract people. And it's very interesting. It's uh, the way cities rise and fall uh, and the way people move around them. You can compare a lot of that to the European Union. And this actually gives me hope because some cities in the U.S. are starting to gain population now and have been for some time. Like my favorite example is Austin, Texas, which is now the best city to live in the U.S. And it wasn't even on the map of migration 20 years ago. And what is happening now, for example, in Europe, I think, is a lot of Eastern European cities, because I wouldn't talk about countries. People live in cities, not in countries. So a lot of the Eastern European cities are trying to, you know, find out what is it that makes them unique and what is it that makes them better to live in. And I think this will be a very fascinating field in the years to come. Rogue question, just to finish off. Where do you think is the Austin of Europe or where's going to be the Austin of Europe in like 20 years time? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I've, if I have to talk about cities that I see rising, I see, for example, Cluj in Romania, which is a very interesting city. And it's starting to attract people back. In Bulgaria, I see Plovdiv, which is the second biggest city, which is now gaining popularity amongst businesses and people to live in. I see several Polish cities also. Katowice, for example, has been advertising itself on Ryanair for years now to attract Polish people. So there's lots and lots going on. But um, who is going to be in the next Austin is like the battle to come. If you think you live somewhere that's going to be the next Austin of Europe, then let us know. What have you been watching this week? I've had one of those weeks when like making a podcast plus having a full time job and trying to prepare to move house next week has all been a bit much. So I haven't really been able to consume any culture other than watching Celebrity Bake Off with Trimi James McAvoy and University <laughs> Challenge. That's allowed. Whilst I loved both those shows, I didn't think it was really worth talking about both of them in depth on the podcast. So I asked our producer, Andre Popovicu, if he had a recommendation for the podcast listeners. And his suggestion was the hugely successful, recently Oscar-nominated Romanian documentary Collective from director Alexander Nanau. It's a searing portrayal of corruption and incompetence following a tragic fire in a Romanian club. Andre says it follows the struggle of investigative journalists who are uncovering the mismanagement and politicizations of the hospitals where the collective patients were. Watching as a Romanian was overwhelming at times, but the documentary showed that investigative journalism is still alive and kicking in Romania, even though corruption is deeply entrenched at all levels of society. It's definitely one I want to watch when I eventually get an evening in which I'm not working or packing or in a comatose state. So everyone, go and check it out. I can't wait to watch that. What have you been enjoying, Katie? The thing I've been watching is not European at all, I'm afraid, in that I have been binging WandaVision on Disney Plus. It is so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, it isn't European, so I feel a bit bad for even mentioning it. However, some of it is set in a fictional Central European country called Sokovia, which is a weird phenomenon in itself that I think we should talk about on the show at some point. All of these invented European countries that crop up in American TV shows. 
Anyway, what I actually wanted to recommend this week is yet another audiobook to add to my list of lockdown comfort listens. And yet again, I am proving that this podcast is nothing if not cutting edge. I've picked something from 1956. <laughs> my Family and Other Animals. Have you read it? By Gerard Durrell. Yeah, loads of British kids do it at school. We didn't. I don't know if you did. Yeah, I have no memory of it. <laughs> You read it too young. Uh, It's a really, really charming, funny biography by uh, Gerald Durrell, the famous nature writer. I think he's maybe one of the most brilliant writers about animals in the English language. He writes so beautifully. And this is his memoir about his childhood, which he spent mostly in Corfu in Greece. Uh, So it's a story of the family moving there, but also all of the wildlife that he discovered as a boy just exploring the island. Yeah, and I just love this book. It's so, so nice and comforting. As you all probably know by now, I'm finding it quite difficult to consume like sad books and TV during this pandemic. And this is just so charming and funny and exactly what I needed right now. My Family and Other Animals. It's extremely old, so you can find it anywhere. You've changed. I remember when you were reading The Plague at the beginning of March last year. I'm actually still reading The Plague. It's really hard to get through it because it's quite grim, but really uncanny. I am still enjoying it, but it needs to be spaced out with funny, light audiobooks. I have to admit to the fact that I also gave up with It's a Sin, this drama about the HIV crisis in the 80s, which is wonderfully made, but I just couldn't do it. You can come back to it later. We are heading to Iceland to close out this episode, where the Fagradalsfjak volcano began erupting at the end of last week. Now, it might sound strange to suggest that a volcano erupting warrants a happy ending, but this volcano seems to have prompted a pretty large amount of joy for thousands of people in Iceland. Partly because it's only a small eruption and hasn't led to any reports of injuries or cancelled flights. It's also just nice for the people of Reykjavik because it's pretty close to the city. It's only 40 kilometers outside of the capital city and you can park your car and it's like a perfect distance for a little walk up to the volcano. So thousands of them have been going in droves to go and hike around the volcano and get up close and personal. I don't think I want to be up close and personal with a volcano, but each to his own, I guess. True. And actually, I think probably in most normal circumstances, it's a good rule of thumb not to get up close and personal with a volcano. And at first, the authorities did say that people shouldn't go anywhere near it. But since the weekend, when it was clear that it was only a small eruption with a little bit of lava, they said that people could. And people have actually even been roasting marshmallows on the cooling lava. Fun! One person who is very excited about the volcano erupting is Björk. She actually filmed a music video at the volcano a few years ago, and she posted a still from that video with a lovely comment on Instagram. And now I wish I was brave enough to read in Bjork's voice, but um, I think I'm going to do it in my own boring voice. Sorry. I think that's a wise idea. She said, yes, eruption. (laughs) We in Iceland are so excited. We still got it. Sense of relief when nature expresses herself. Enjoy. Warmthness. Bjork. Oh, that is lovely. I think that should be set as like a dramatic reading for 
theatre students. Well, I thought you just read it very beautifully, Dominic. So um, that's going to go into canon, that performance you just did. Well done. Thank you. I was really trying hard to express that there were a lot of exclamation marks in the comment, like tons of them. I couldn't hear them. I think you should go back and practice. While you're checking out Bjork on Instagram, you should also check us out on Instagram. We are there posting up a storm, that's not true, at (laughs) Europeans Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Europeans Pod, on Facebook, the Europeans Podcast, and you can email us, hello at europeanspodcast.com. Next week, we are going to Romania, not physically, if only. Uh, We've got an excellent interview coming up with the Romanian feminist activist Sofia Scarlett, so don't miss it. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Katz Laszlo, Priyanka Shankar, and Andre Popovicu. Until next week. Dovichtene. Bye. Did you like listening to this story? You can also become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers and others across the continent starting at four euros a month. Just go to areweeurope.com slash member and help us build a new media for a changing continent. That's areweeurope.com slash member.